You're listening to A Catholic Bible Study on the Gospel of Matthew with Scripture scholars Dr. Tim Gray and Dr. Michael Barber. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. president of the Augustine Institute, and joining me is Dr. Michael Barber, a professor of scripture here at the Augustine Institute, and we're going to continue our wonderful uh, walk through the gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 16, so whether you've been with us through chapters 1 through 15, or you're joining us today, uh, there's always a lot to learn in the gospel of Matthew. He's the catechism for the early church, and he really gives us a great window into the life of Jesus Christ, and we're, I'm excited because Matthew 16 has some wonderful stories especially for us Catholics. These, these chapters in particular are very, very important. Mm-hmm. And uh, we could talk about that when we get later uh, into the, the chapter. But let's just start with uh, you know, chapter 16 and the opening story here. Because Jesus is going to uh, talk about the signs. They, well, they want to come and test Jesus, ask him for a sign. That's right. And then he's going to give him a, a rather strong response. Why don't we pick That's up with right. Jesus' response? Okay, sounds good. So Jesus, they ask him for a sign, and Jesus says, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So this is really a significant passage because Jesus is explaining that, of course, they can read the natural signs, but they don't have the ability to recognize what's unfolding before them. Here, the Messiah is present and they are un- unwilling, really, to recognize the miracles that Jesus is performing in their midst. And, um, of course, here we have that phrase, the signs of the times, that gets thrown out quite a bit in, in magisterial documents of the church gets used quite a bit in uh, papal documents. And one thing that we have to recognize is signs of the times is especially a Christological referent. In other words, they can't recognize how to interpret things in light of the person, the coming of the person of Jesus Christ. This is really important because I feel like a lot of times, Tim, people use this expression of reading the signs of the times. It's almost kind of like reading the tea leaves. You know, like <laughs> I, kinda, I can tell it's which like way the, the wind know, is going to like blow. Like the Zodiac, you can kind of make all kinds of predictions. That's right. But yeah. first and foremost, you're exactly right. It's about Christ. That's right. And, you know, it's not like Jesus just showed up on the scene <laughs> right. and, you know, surprised everybody. There was Isaiah. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, a lot of prophets that God had sent ahead of time. And even, especially I think of Daniel and Josephus, Josephus mentions that Daniel was very popular reading at this time. Mm -hmm. And Daniel gave, basically, if you want to have signs, he gave a whole set of signs and a timeline, you know, the the 580 years, the the four kingdoms that will rule over Israel. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, since the time of the exile, you had the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. So basically, you know you're in the fourth kingdom, which in Daniel 7 and Daniel 9, that's a trigger, uh, especially in Daniel 7, that we're at the time for the advent of the Messiah. So there was messianic expectation uh, that was starting to brew and grow, and all of a sudden, Jesus, and then you get John the Baptist 
saying, I'm preparing the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm the voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. So you get John the Baptist, and now you get Jesus doing all these signs. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not, a, it shouldn't be a surprise, should it? That's right. And of course, Jesus once again refers here to the sign of Jonah. And we've talked about that already, and it really has a twofold referent. And this is important to keep in the back of our minds in light of what's going to come, that, of course, the sign of Jonah, on the one hand, refers to Jesus's Paschal mystery, right? Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so for three days, Jesus will rise on the third day, right? But at the same time, you go back and look at Jesus's um, use of that phrase, the sign of Jonah, in Matthew 12, and it also refers to the fact that, not, that the Ninevites, the Gentiles, came to believe. So the sign of Jonah is ultimately uh, going to point us forward beyond the resurrection to the conversion of Gentiles of pagans, yeah. and we're going to get we're gonna into get pagan there territory soon. Well, yeah. exactly, and I want to uh, more to say about that later in the chapter. Right, but I, I think that that's an important thing to hold. That there's two di- different uh, threads to Jonah that we want to uh, keep keep tabs of. Mm-hmm. Well, then after that, um, uh, they go to the other side. So let's look at I think that's verse five. Yep. Uh, when the disciples reach the other side, and that's of course Sea of Galilee, River Jordan feeding in. Exactly. So the, we've got a map up there. So exactly. So see. the political divide. So the other side is not east to west or north to south. The other side is the side of territory. So Herod has what we would call the, east, the western uh, part of the Sea of Galilee. His brother, Philip, owns most of the territory on the eastern half, and it's divided on the north by the Jordan River where it enters into this, the Sea of Galilee. And that's the other side. So it could just be a couple miles uh, going on the other side, and the other side then being the political jurisdiction. So that's the idea of mm-hmm. other side. So that's important for us to keep in mind to understand where he's going. And so then Jesus goes to the other side. Now, actually, we know, uh, uh, well, and then they forgot to bring any bread, <laughs> right? And, uh, and Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why do you discuss the, uh, among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not yet remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves and the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it then that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So this brings us all, all the way back to the temptation narrative where Satan uh, confronts Jesus and tells him, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, no. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so already Matthew has helped us understand that bread is not just a reference to ordinary material food, but to the word of God, to Torah, to teaching, right? And that that word Torah actually means teaching. And And there's a great connection, Michael, with mm -hmm. that because he says, O ye of dinky faith, or a little Mm -hmm. faith. And the first time he uses that phrase is in Matthew chapter 6, when he says, look, you know, God cares about the birds in the field. They don't gather into barns and store up grain, and yet your Father in heaven feeds them and takes care of them. And so, so do not be anxious, O men of little faith, what you shall eat or what you shall drink. Excellent. Right? And so, uh, and, and so there's a nice parallel between this story and chapter 6. And then 
the two other times he uses Metadinky Faith, it happens to be, um, well, the, the, the other two times uh, was in a different story. So we'll just, I'll just keep it that because there's a lot to cover. All right, and then, of course, Jesus is saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's not talking about ordinary bread here. Well, he, you know, they, they say, oh, we brought no bread. Jesus says, okay, but there's something to be more concerned about than not having enough bread. Something that would be, wor- that, that would be even worse would be consuming the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And here he's referring to their teaching. Now, some people have argued that this is a, a clear sign that, that Matthew doesn't know uh, the first century Jewish world. He, he's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as if they believed the same thing and everybody knows the Pharisees and Sadducees had different beliefs. This is not anything like that. No, the, Matthew's not showing ignorance of the differences between the beliefs of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The problem is neither can read the signs of the times because neither understand who Jesus is, right? So going back to Matthew 13, we see that parable of the, of the hidden leaven. Just a little bit of leaven and it can have a massive impact, right? And so you put a little bit of leaven in bread and it, 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 it can make the whole loaf expand, right? Well, a little bit of leaven can be a good thing or it can be a very bad thing. And in, in a lot of cases, leaven is associated with sin in ancient Judaism and the Feast of Well, yeah, bread. let's take a, think of Paul in 1 Corinthians, right? Mm-hmm. So Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 mm-hmm. uses this metaphor about you know, get rid of the leaven of insincerity and conceit. And he says, you're, you're, literally, your boasting is not good, but the word literally in the Greek for boasting is being puffed up. And that's exactly what leaven does. It puffs up the bread. And so it's the, the pride, which is the fundamental sin, the pride of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, the, and, their, and the, that kind of arrogance, that pride, that pride blinds you from recognizing Christ. And that's... that's right. That's what he wants his disciples not to not to struggle with pride. Right, and I think the main issue uh, uh, that Jesus has in view here, when he says, "Beware of their teaching," Jesus is later in Matthew twenty-three going to say, "The Pharisees sit on Moses's chair, so do whatever they tell you." So, how can Jesus say what he says here about beware of their teaching, beware of the leaven of the of the uh, of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Some scholars say, "Oh, well, see, Matthew's just totally contradictory. You know, it doesn't make any sense." No, here in particular he's talking about their teaching in, in as much as their rejection of him mm-hmm. that is what they need to be aware of their lack of faith in him and so that leads us to quite the contrast right where the pharisees and sadducees don't understand simon does yeah that's the next story which is so great so you pick we pick up in the next verse in verse 13 now when jesus came into the district of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And then we get the first Gallup poll on Jesus, basically. Some <laughs> say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah. One of the prophets, 10% undecided. And, uh, and so you get uh, the opinion poll on, on Jesus. And notice that when you survey the crowd, the mob, you don't get the identity. They don't get the right identity for Jesus, mm-hmm. right? And, of course, that's going to come from Peter. So you want to talk about Peter's profession here? And, and then we'll come back to the place because that'll be important. But let's, let's so this is a passage I've spent a lot of time researching and writing about, and uh, it's very rich. So they say, some say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, 
Now, the words are significant here. It says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So you're the Messiah, the Christ, son of the living God. And the language here is drawing from expectations for a coming son of David, Messiah. And it's, it's helpful here to just flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have a very important passage. This is the passage where God makes a covenant oath to David. David wants to build God a house. He wants to build God the temple. And at first, the prophet Nathan says, go do what's in your heart. And then he receives a word from the Lord, and he comes back to David and says, no, here's what the Lord says to you. The Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. So David wanted to build a temple, and God, through Nathan, says, no, no, God's going to build you a house, but in the sense of a royal line, a, a line of kings after you. The Lord will make you a house, so like the house of Aragon, if you're mm-hmm. a fan of Lord of the Rings. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up off- your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He goes on to explain that God's going to give you a kingdom that will last forever. So in context, David wants to build the Lord a temple. And God comes back and says, no, no, no. You're not going to build me a house first. I'm going to be more generous than you can be with me. And you can never outgive God, right? Right. And, and so he says, you will have a son. You will have a line. And your son will be my son. Now, In the context of the narrative, of course, that son is Solomon. Solomon is the son of David, and he is the adopted son of God, and he builds the temple. So when Peter comes to Jesus and says, you are the Messiah, we already know what that means. Matthew's very first verse is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And the fact that Jesus is the son of God makes perfect sense in light of his messianic identity. But then look at what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Oh my gosh, so much to say about that. But Mm -hmm. Peter gets his own beatitude here, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed is Simon. And then he says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So notice that Jesus is the son of David, who's the son of God, you're going to build something. Peter says, yeah, Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to build like the son of David did. I'm going to build the true temple. And that true temple is identified with the church. But so much, so the Davidic imagery runs throughout. You are the Christ. And every time in Jewish worship, almost every time, the Davidic king is identified as the son of David. It's in connection with his role over the temple, building the temple, managing the temple, something like that. So we have that imagery in place. We also have, um, I don't know what order we should take this all in. Um, let me just say something else about the temple here. Well, I don't, boy, why don't you talk about uh, Simon, son of Jonah? Yeah, so that I, I think we could, we could go there. I, I love how there's this great parallelism, if you read the text, between Jesus and Peter. Mm-hmm. So Peter professes about Jesus. You are Christ, mm-hmm. the son of the living God. And then Peter mm-hmm. Uh, gets a blessing in response, and Jesus then says to Peter, 
you are Simon, the son of Jonah. And so it's a beautiful way in which uh, there's this back and forth between Peter and our Lord. So Peter makes a profession about Jesus. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus himself then says, you are rock, right? So just as Jesus had a title, Christ, Jesus now gives Peter a title. You are rock. You are Simon. And so uh, Petros, this Kephos in the Aramaic. So Peter now has a title because rock is not a name. Um, and so it's, it's a title. It says something about Peter's vocation. And, uh, and that's really important because Christ says a lot about Jesus' vocation, to be the anointed son of David, the anointed king. And then what a lot of people miss is that he, Jesus then says, uh, blessed are you, Simon, so he calls him Simon Rock, bar Jonah. And we even get Matthew keeps the Aramaic. So this is a, a phrase that was repeated in the church, and he preserves the Aramaic, which is very unusual for Matthew to do that. But it's getting that this is something so important. And there's something about the Aramaic phrase that captures the meaning that you just can't simply put it into Greek. And bar, of course, means son in Aramaic. And Jonah, son of Jonah. So what does that mean that Peter is bar Jonah? Well, a lot of people think, well, all right, he's just saying, blessed are you, Simon. And he will change his name to, you know, from, uh, he's going to change his name from Simon to Rock. But then the idea of bar Jonah is a real significant point here because uh it means are you simon except for jonah bar jonah (laughs) yeah bar yeah no exactly yeah i know and bar Bar jonah being uh his father's name is not jonah that's the fascinating thing we know from the gospel of john chapter 20 verse 17 and following that three times jesus says to peter on the beach after he's resurrected do you love me more than these simon son of john Mm -hmm. do you love me more than these simon son of john and john is a very different name than jonah Jonah is an extraordinarily rare name. In fact, we have no instance of a Jonah besides the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament. We have no instance of a Jonah in the first century or even in, biblical, even in the Old Testament times of a man being called Jonah. Jonah means dove. And so people say, well, we're going to call our boy. Let's call him dove. Right? <laughs> and the, the irony, of course, is that Jonah will be a dove sent to Nineveh to bring peace to Israel's enemies. So his name actually relates to his vocation in a very interesting and funny name, way. But the only other uh, Yonah that we have for quite some time in the Talmud, the period of the Talmud, is a woman. So uh, Jonah is an extraordinarily rare name, and it's not John. So we know that Peter's father's name is John. And so when Jesus says, Bar Jonah, uh, why is he doing that? Well, remember how this chapter began. No sign will be given this adulterous and sinful generation except for the sign of Jonah. And now Jesus is saying, Peter, uh, Simon, you are, blessed are you, bar Jonah. In other words, Peter is going to be a son of Jonah in a prophetic way. He's going to be a spiritual son of the prophet Jonah and a prophet like Jonah. And of course, Jonah is sent to the capital of Israel's enemy, Nineveh, the archenemy of Israel, which was Assyria. And the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. Peter, will he be sent to the capital of Israel's enemy? Yeah, Rome. And that's where Peter's going to end up. And he will be sent there to preach. And just as Jonah was effective in preaching to the Ninevites, Peter will be effective at preaching to those in Rome. And I think it's significant that this all takes place in the district of Caesarea, named after Caesar Philippi, right? So it's Caesarea Philippi because it's named after Caesar in the region of Philip, right? Um, 
And then going on, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. When Jesus calls him Peter, the Greek word is Petros. When he says, on this rock I'll build my church, the word is Petra. People say, oh, well then Peter isn't the one Jesus is actually building on, right? Maybe Jesus is just building on Peter's faith and not on Peter himself or something like that. Well, the problem with that is Jesus couldn't have called Peter Petra because Petra is feminine in Greek. So Jesus couldn't say, blessed are you, Simon Petrina. He couldn't call him that, right? Had to give him a masculine name. So he is the rock on which the church is built, right? And this is the point of renaming him right at this particular point. And then he says he will build his church on him, and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, that imagery of the, of the key uh, is widely seen as being drawn from an oracle in Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah 22, we read about a wicked figure named Shebna, who's getting pink slipped. He's mm, giving it. Yep. Yeah, he's he's getting fired by the Lord. And the main reason is he's been unfaithful. And God announces to Shebna he's going to be replaced by a righteous man named Eliakim. And it's worth reading what it says here in Isaiah. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your girdle on him. I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem to the house of Judah. And The weight of his father's house will be on him, the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. And so the idea is in Isaiah 22, you have this figure whose authority is symbolized by the key. And it's often the case that people misunderstand who this figure Eliakim is. A lot of people have understood him as some kind of prime minister or something like that. But the reality is, if you read it, Carefully in Isaiah 22, the garments that Eliakim wears, the coat and the girdle, are the two garments only worn by one figure in the Old Testament, and that's the high priest. So in Leviticus, for example, we read this. uh, In Leviticus, uh, oh gosh, I I thought I had it right here. I think it's Leviticus chapter 8. Aaron is given the, the garments of the high priesthood. We also see this in Exodus 28. Um, and Jewish tradition understood that Eliakim wasn't just some kind of royal official, but that he was the high priest in the Targums, which are uh, paraphrases of the Old Testament books written by later rabbis. We read uh, the version of the, this prophecy says, I will thrust you, Shebna, from your place and throw you down from your ministry. I will clothe Eliakim with your robe, gird him with your censure. goes on to say, and I will give him the key to the sanctuary. And if you read Jerome, Eusebius, Aquinas, Aquinas is a commentary on Isaiah. In, his, in Thomas Aquinas' commentary on Isaiah, he explains, who is Eliakim? He's the high priest. St. Um, Charles Borromeo said the same thing, right? So why do we think of the apostles as priests? Why do we think of the apostles as the first priests of the new covenant? Where do we get that idea? Some people say they weren't really priests. They were just missionaries. Well, no, if you understand the language Jesus is using and the echoes that he intends his hearers to catch, right? Namely, that Peter is the new Eliakim, then you understand Peter is a priest. The church is a temple. And so what do you call the person who's being put in charge of this new temple? 
He's a priest. And so it's appropriate for Jesus to draw from that image there. The image of key is also uh, frequently associated with priests. In Jesus' day, Josephus tells us that when they uh, changed divisions, so there were 24 different divisions of priests that served in the temple at different times of the year. And when they had to pass over their authority in the temple, there was a ceremony. When one division's time was up and somebody else took over, they had a big ceremony in the temple. And Josephus explains, first century historian Josephus says what they did is they met and they passed over the keys. So Jesus is signifying Peter's priestly authority, and that authority is meant to be passed on. That's fascinating. You know, I think um, I, I haven't heard that I, the, I, the idea of, of the priestly imagery here. Yeah, yeah. But it, it could be both. I mean, I'm, I'm still not convinced that— Oh, it's that, not either or. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's Cause, both. Because David it's, is a king and he's a priest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, great, great. Because right. it says in 22 that, you know— uh, Chebna is the Ha'albayit, the, the, the one Chief over steward. the house. Right. But in is, the rabbinic tradition, for example, mm-hmm. in the Babylonian Talmud and in 2nd Baruch. Oh, I believe that. Composite. But that's because all they have left is the priesthood. Yeah. They've lost the kingdom. No, so the but, rabbis aren't going to focus on the kingdom. No, but, but what happens is when the, they tell the story of how the priests were wicked and caused the destruction of Jerusalem, there are stories of how the priest looked up into heaven and said, we have been unworthy stewards. The same language mm-hmm. from Isaiah 22. And they take the keys of the temple in these Jewish legends and they throw them up into uh, heaven. Okay. So they, they link the civil authority uh, to the priestly authority because the son yeah. of David is both a king and a priest. Right. So right, it's appropriate. Right. No, that makes yeah. sense. And the binding and loosing would be juridical. So that's so, something that's not teaching. priestly. So it's it's all, right? Yep, because yep, yep. Binding, and, uh, binding and loosing... Um, have, have multiple different meanings. There are four different meanings, but it can mean teaching authority. Mm-hmm. It can mean juridical authority. That is, who is in the community, who's outside the community. Well, right. if you have the authority to say, this is a mortal sin, right. this is a serious sin, this, is, this will cut you off, then these two things are related. They also seem to relate to... Uh, but the binding and losing in, in Isaiah 22 would be primarily royal. Primarily... Uh, well, in Isaiah 22, it's not binding and loosing. It's he shall open, none shall shut. Yeah, which is, he shall shut, none shall open. And in Aramaic, it's pretty much the same idea. Yeah, yeah. but that's, that would be royal. That would be freeing people from prison or releasing presidential pardon. Sure. Although uh, Thomas thinks that it's actually, Thomas Aquinas says mm-hmm. it's actually opening the, the temple or closing the temple. I'm yeah, the same with yeah no, I, I get yeah, that, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I think that there. I, I'll have to think more about the priestly it be, element. It could be both. Because yeah, yeah, he could be making the, the priest the high, the halbayit. Right. Uh, that's how every, that's how Eusebius, yeah. Jerome, yep. the rabbis, everybody yep. seems yep. to interpret it that way. Yeah. Um, Charles Borromeo, Doctor of the Church. Uh, yep. As the others too, Jerome, of course, but. But, but I'm going back to Isaiah 22. Yeah, yeah just sure, for context, sure, sure. Before you get into the interpretive yeah, sure, tradition. Sure. Yeah, Because, uh, you know, and, and it, it does seem juridical there because he even sure. talks about the things, the vessels in the kitchen. Yes. And I know you could say that there's a kitchen in the temple. That's I know right. you're going to go there. Yeah, but, you could easily. But, yeah. it, but freeing and binding, these, aren't, these weren't typically priestly things. These were royal things. And, and you have Hezekiah, yeah. who's the king. And you've got an unfaithful steward who is working on uh, building his own tomb and giving up the fight. Yes. Uh, so I, but the binding and loosing is also there understood as priestly authority in Jewish and Christian th- sources. Mm-hmm. So, so it's also teaching no, authority. And Josephus, and, by the way, and Josephus uses the, the idea of the keys with kingdom uh, connotations as well. Sure. Oh, there's no question. Yeah. About it. It's All not right. either okay, or. Okay. But what Great. I would just say is 
it's, it's significant that we were talking above about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That was the controversy right. in 16 in yep. early. So when Jesus gives Peter authority to bind and loose, he seems to be giving him what? Teaching authority here. Yeah. And that's really significant because what we recognize is in Peter, we have the fulfillment of Eliakim's yeah. role. And who was Eliakim? He was supposed to be a father to the inhabitants of exactly. the land. And what is the, what is the successor of Peter today? The Pope. It's the Pope which and means Pope father. literally means father, yeah, right? That's so awesome. it really does. It really, I mean, together. when you read this, you could see why Protestants were afraid of Matthew being too Catholic. <laughs> uh, and then they. You know, it's a, that's a whole other story of how they wanted to date Matthew really, really late right. as this Catholic accretion right. to the uh, story of Jesus. But yeah. you, you, get, you can't understand uh, Jesus without understanding the significant role that Peter plays here. Mm. And we're going to come back to this in our next episode because there's, we're, we're, I can't believe we're almost out, we're of time. out of time. <laughs> but, um, but one of the things that I want us to think about is Jesus in Matthew 7 said a wise man builds his house on the rock. Yes. And that's how he ended the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. And then at the end of chapter 12, he talked about a greater than Solomon is here, right? And of course, Solomon was known for his wisdom and building the temple. And of course, now Jesus says that he is going to build uh, his kingdom on Peter, right? And Jesus is the builder. And the house he's going to build is going to be the new temple, the church. So the church isn't just a club. Yep, the church exactly. is a temple. That's exactly, absolutely. So so that gives us all the significance that Christus Faber in the Latin tradition, mm-hmm. Christ the builder. Christ comes to build something, and he's building it upon Peter. And you don't understand Jesus' role if you don't understand that at the heart of Jesus' mission is that he's a builder and he's laying a foundation on Peter, which is the rock, which is the church. So if we don't understand the church, we're not going to understand Christ. And there's a lot more to unpack about this. Yeah. And we're going to have some great conversations next time as we follow up on this. So I want to thank everybody for joining us. I want to thank all of you who are in our mission circle. You know, your monthly support, just $10 or more a month, really makes a big impact uh, on our mission. And we're grateful to be partnered with you and for your support. And if you want to learn more about the Mission Circle or become a member, just go to the top right corner of Formed on the Donate button, click that, and you can find a couple different ways to donate, but the Mission Circle is a great way to donate and support us. We pray for all of our Mission Circle partners every day, and I'm grateful for all your support, and I hope that uh, this has interested you and there's a lot more to come, so stay tuned for next week's episode on the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. God bless. You can watch this Bible study in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustan Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, e-books, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.